Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Episode 36, The Biblical Authors of Genesis. In the previous episode, we went over the rise of scribes and storytelling under the Assyrian Empire. Today we will focus on one particular scribe, a scribe who started his unlikely rise to glory in Jerusalem of the first part of the 6th century BCE, as Babylon was becoming an empire, an empire that would burn Jerusalem to the ground. Even though you've probably never heard of him, that scribe is widely accepted to have written parts of the Hebrew Bible. His name, Baruch ben Neriah or Baruch, son of Neriah, the official scribe for the prophet Jeremiah. Ben Neriah wrote on scrolls many of the chapters of the book of Jeremiah, be they prophecies that the prophet dictated to him, or Ben Neriah's own accounts of political events. Going over the Ben Neriah texts and comparing them with Genesis offers solid evidence that the Jeremiah-Ben Neriah tandem should be considered the biblical authors of Genesis. The literary style, recurring expressions, explosive emotions, and overt references in Jeremiah to a multitude of Genesis stories lead to what shouldn't be that radical of a conclusion. That a known biblical author wrote more biblical texts than initially thought. So what was the context for Genesis? With the incoming Babylonian threat, Jeremiah and Ben-Neriah tried to get the Judean leadership to accept the Babylonians as overlords and thus prevent disaster. But they failed. They were there when the city was sacked. They tried to make it work under the Babylonian-appointed Hebrew governor, but internal strife forced them and the remaining Israelite and Judean elites to find refuge in Egypt. These formative life events the personalities of Jeremiah and Beneriah, their inclinations, their politics, their hang-ups, and their complicated friendship, all of these are baked into the stories of Genesis. The very idea sounds dubious, but are biblical authors different from any other kind of author merely because their writing process is shrouded in time? or because their texts have been categorized as divine centuries after they died? When biblical authors put pen to paper or quill to scroll, are they singularly unique in their ability to shut their souls out of the writing process, leaving their personal experiences, issues, and emotions out of the stories they produce? No author that I've ever heard of was able to write outside their very specific emotional and social context. Be it a sad Sumerian poem, a medieval heroic epic, a Quentin Tarantino film, or the Hebrew Bible. We can even look further. Even though the plots and cast of characters change from story to story, Shakespeare repeatedly wrote about the power of the absolute monarch. Tolkien had orcs, elves, and magical rings, but mostly he wrote about the hardships of World War I and the destruction of nature in the English countryside. For Ben Neriah, it was the religious political battle fought within Jerusalem as the Babylonians were suffocating the city until it cracked. Even when in Genesis it was ostensibly about Sodom and Gomorrah 
or Joseph getting thrown by his brothers into a pit. It was actually about what happened to and in Jerusalem. Jeremiah and Benaria were unlikely partners. Their life story is rife with epic historical drama, tragedy, loyalty, rivalry, jealousy, and redemption. And all of this is in the book of Genesis, with the star, not Jeremiah, but Baruch ben Neriah. Hi everybody, this is Gil. This is the second summer episode of Genesis. I highly recommend listening to the previous episode before listening to this one. Without the context provided in the previous one, I think you'll sort of be missing part of the story. This episode presented a unique challenge. Not only because of the amount of research that went into it, but because even though the facts are constant, the story of Benneria can be told in at least a dozen different ways. I went back and forth and then decided that the best version is the one you're listening to now. This is a podcast about the Bible, so I crossed my T's and dotted my I's. A biblical author, that's big. So I want to make this episode count. The first 50 minutes or so of the episode are dedicated to the dramatic story of the lives of our main characters. And then the last part of the episode is sort of an appendix, like a bibliography. I put that at the end so we can first focus on what is most compelling. It's not going to be telling, but showing. I don't want to convince you. I want you to see it for yourselves. So I hope you find it interesting. So, Baruch ben Neria. Who the hell is he? <laughs> His name is obscure to us because he's been largely forgotten in recent centuries. But if you go back in time, you learn that he was very well known in his lifetime and legendary for a solid 2,000 years after his death. And this is important because it makes sense that the author of Genesis would achieve a very high status in his community. And for Ben Neria, it went way beyond that. He's known today mostly as a Jeremiah's scribe, but frankly, this is not the kind of achievement that garners two millennia of respect. It has to be something bigger. The Hebrews exiled in Babylon thought very highly of Ben Neria, even though he was, for them, part of the enemy camp that pushed to surrender to the Babylonians. The Babylonian Hebrews chose to appropriate the Ben Neria brand to aggrandize their own local talent. They insisted that Ben Neria had not in fact died in Egypt, no, no, no. He left it in old age and joined the rival exiles in Babylon to forgive and forget and, most importantly, to teach the community's rising star, Ezra, the scribe. When they wanted to give Ezra a glorious scribal lineage, they connected him directly to Beneria. All of this, it bears mentioning, was when Beneria had been dead for about a hundred years. Beneria was so famous in the ancient world that he was recorded by the Roman Jewish historian Josephus Flavius six hundred plus years after Beneria's death. Josephus stated that Beneria had wonderful writing capabilities 
in the language of his people. Hmm. Biblical authors living around the time of Josephus produced new biblical books supposedly written by Beneria, who was now considered a prophet 600 years after his death. These are called pseudepigraphic biblical books, and they were all the rage back then. The honor of getting a book written supposedly by a celebrated dead figure was reserved for King Solomon, Adam, and the aforementioned Ezra. That's pretty good company, but Ben Neria got more pseudepigraphic books than anyone. Four total, four. The book of Baruch and Baruch 2, 3, and 4. I should actually call him Baruch, but the is not as pleasant, so Ben Neria, it is. You're welcome. In the ensuing centuries, Beneria was incorporated into Jewish and Christian fables, and he even makes an appearance in Zoroastrian and Muslim folklore, more than 1,500 years after his death. 500 years later, in medieval Europe, Jewish rabbis were still speaking fondly of him. And as dessert, the Brazilian sculptor Ale Jadinho, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he immortalized Beneria in 1805 in his UNESCO World Heritage Site called the Twelve Prophets in Brazil. <laughs> he ended up in Brazil more than 2,000 years after his death. As is the case with immense historical figures, Beneria's final resting place also became the stuff of legend for several communities. But history works in mysterious ways. And this is almost surely the first time you hear about this titan of biblical proportions. We might not have heard of Beneria, but we've all heard of Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Probably the most famous prophet in the Bible, remembered for being a prophet of doom. But let's not let his fame cloud our judgment, and let's look at him with clear eyes. Jeremiah was an extremely disturbed individual, gravely mentally ill. I'm not kidding or being hyperbolic. His chapters read like a cry for help from 2,500 years ago. You almost want to put the book down and call some hotline. Here's the most poignant example, of which there are many more. So in the first chapter of his book, Jeremiah claims to have been chosen by Yahweh before his birth to speak in his name. Yahweh even touched his mouth for that purpose. This is very grand and megalomaniac. Throughout the book, Jeremiah rants in the first person, bookending each rant with a Yahweh says. What have you done to me? Why did you lie to me? You hurt my feelings, Yahweh says. Yeah, sure, Yahweh. As is usually the case with extreme megalomania, there is a darker flip side. Chapter 20 in the book named after him provides an uncomfortable glimpse into the wounded soul of Jeremiah. He now claims that Yahweh seduced him to live a life of humiliation as he speaks in Yahweh's name. One moment he's a chosen one, the next he's a loser. 
He then curses the day of his birth and curses the messenger who told his father of his birth. He wishes he had died in the womb with his mother as his grave. This person was unwell. He might have turned into a biblical figure, but he was just like any other person suffering from severe mental health problems. He was a troubled man living in troubled times. Jeremiah filled the niche of the perpetually berating prophet. Before talk radio, before YouTube, you had to stand in the streets and yell at passersby. According to his own account, Jeremiah was either ignored or more commonly, as tensions in the city rose, bullied and ridiculed. He was even tortured once. And then he met Baruch Ben All of a sudden, the higher-ups feared Jeremiah's prophecies. He was wrong probably more often than he was right, but when it was all said and done, he got the biggest thing right. And this is why he became famous. He warned that the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem if the Judean king would not accept vassalship and pay tribute. And destroy Jerusalem, the Babylonians did. Jeremiah called it. Ben-Neria wrote it. So now that we have a sense of the character of Jeremiah, let's get to know Ben-Neria. And let's do it through the Genesis stories he wrote. If you're new to this podcast, we are not scholars. I will be relying on scholarship, but this is my take on things. I mentioned in the intro the story of Solomon Gomorrah, but there are three Genesis tales that really jump out as Ben-Neria-style stories. In terms of Shakespearean monologues, loads of positive emotions, themes of servitude, etc. We think that those were clearly written by Baruch Ben-Neria. The first Genesis story is that of Abraham's slave going on a mission to the east to find a bride for his master's son, Isaac. That's Genesis 24. It's an exquisitely written human story. The second Genesis story is also set in the same east. This time it is Jacob who hides there from his brother Esau. And that's where he marries his two wives and fights with their father. It's a great story full of love, righteous indignation, forgiveness, and hurting. Those would be Genesis chapters 29 to 33. And then there's the grandest story of them all, Joseph. A marvel to behold, a jewel. The story of Joseph is made up wholly from what happened to and between Jeremiah and Ben-Neria. Once we learn more about their lives, we'll see how they were turned into Genesis stories, in the genre of pseudo-ancient storytelling. So, let's talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's slave, Jacob in the East, and Joseph. Let's start with the evil, bad cities, punished by Yahweh for not being nice. Reading through Jeremiah and 
Comparing how he talks of Jerusalem and the famous Genesis story, I was surprised by how clear it is that Sodom and Gomorrah is a cautionary tale. It is apologetics for Jeremiah and Yahweh for the destruction caused by the Babylonians who Yahweh brought and Jeremiah announced. It's pretty direct. The way that Genesis describes Sodom as being populated 100% by disgusting assholes from the eldest to the youngest. This is perfectly in line with how Jeremiah describes Jerusalem. He's not a local. He's a guest. And how did they treat guests back in Sodom, huh? When Genesis talks of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's Jeremiah talking about Jerusalem. A contemporary account retold in the fashion of an ancient story. Probably appropriating the known story of Sodom and Gomorrah to say something about the present. Jeremiah warns that Jerusalem will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. So that story must have been known. But the version that we have in Genesis is the version that ties it to Jerusalem. Before Yahweh laid waste to those two cities full of vice, Abraham pleaded with him to spare them if only they would find some righteous inhabitants. They even haggle over the number that would avoid annihilation. This is Genesis 18, verse 23. Then Abraham approached Yahweh and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? A few verses later, What if only ten can be found there? Yahweh answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. But it turned out that there was not even one righteous man in Sodom. Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 1, the NIV version. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem, look around and consider, search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive the city. And this is the same sin. Jerusalem is not evil because it has forgotten Yahweh, but because it acts sinfully. The people in all those cities are just rotten and untrustworthy. I know it's uh, radical to say that the famously sinful city of Sodom is actually the famously holy city of Jerusalem. But you'll see as I continue with the Genesis stories, the internal logic is consistent with all of them being similarly symbolic stories about that period. And this is not my opinion of Jerusalem. This is Jeremiah's opinion of Jerusalem. He hates Jerusalem. He despises it. He's counting the days until the Babylonian soldiers will get to storm the streets of the city. And then he's reveling in the misery they left behind. So Yahweh destroys Sodom and Gomorrah and Jerusalem. Okay, so let's get to Jacob's eastern journey. When hiding back east from his brother Esau, Yaakov works as an independent contractor for his land-owning, property-owning uncle Lavan. This relative from the East is a very impressively written character. 
Lavan exudes danger, but he's a man of reason. And by the end, they come to an agreement that includes a border in Gilead. That's one of the places important to Jeremiah. In the story, Jacob labored first to get Lavan's daughters in marriage. And then he labored some more to buy his own independence, ostensibly, plus some property. This is a very concrete disagreement, not a divine religious one, and they solve it in a reasonable way. This is the story that Jeremiah offers in chapter 31 of his book, referencing how Jerusalem could buy its own independence from its eastern rival, as Jacob did. Jacob redeemed himself, in Hebrew, Pada, redeemed himself from a stronger rival. Pada is about money. It's not redeeming in a moral or personal sense. It's like paying off your debts. Even if they are unjust, which they certainly were in the eyes of Jacob. But the eastern stronger rival, Lavan, is at the end of the day a man you can cut a deal with. Same with Nebuchadnezzar. From time immemorial, leaders have been using the past to justify their present policies. Here they wrote a new story for the known patriarch Jacob to reinforce their point that Nebuchadnezzar might be harsh, but he is a man of reason. The whole argument for years in Jerusalem was about the Babylonians, was about what to do with Nebuchadnezzar, who ended up creating the largest empire to that point. Having a contemporary take on Nebuchadnezzar, the person, might be the coolest thing ever. But this is not the reason that this chapter has Ben Neria and Jeremiah written all over it. It's something else. There's a huge neon sign, a line delivered during the climactic argument over money. Jacob vigorously makes his case and exclaims that he worked so hard for Lavan that the heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night. This is Genesis chapter 31. In Hebrew, it's even more memorable. Dry at day, ice at night. This is not an accidental line. It comes from what was at the time Jeremiah's most iconic and controversial prophecy. Not of doom for the city or its people. This line was about the top man in all of Judah, King Yehoiachim. Jeremiah and Benariah came up in a place and time where Deuteronomy and its supposed ancient sacred laws were the most important political force. The words of Yahweh. When they were first revealed to the king back then, in 622 BCE, Josiah, Yoshiao, he tore his clothes in fear. This wasn't some Kakamaika wannabe prophet yelling in the streets. This was holy text. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, he calls Deuteronomy a fake. Sheker et Sheker Sofrim, the lying pen of the lying scribes. This wasn't yet the time to fight with the sword. He needed to fight the pen with his own pen. Get a scribe to put his words onto scrolls. 
he is to write a book. Yahweh said. Scrolls is one thing, a book is another. But most urgently, he had prophecies put to text. Because contrary to what the king and court would have you believe, Yahweh wasn't going to save Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar, because it is Yahweh who brought Nebuchadnezzar to lay waste to Jerusalem. Unless you listen to what I say and open the gates. And here we're getting to the prophecy Jeremiah made about the king that somehow found itself in a Jacob monologue. So in Jeremiah chapter 36, Jeremiah becomes a public enemy. He orders Ben-Neria to take his new scrolls of Yahweh all-time Jeremiah prophecies of Babylonian doom and read them aloud in front of the temple of Yahweh on an especially busy religious holiday. With masses of people from all over the land heading to the temple. Jeremiah couldn't do it himself. Maybe he was scared. If the plan was to get the Ben-Neria bump and stir shit up, it worked too well. All the head officials and ministers quickly convened to discuss the incendiary texts and summoned Ben-Neria to get to the bottom of things. Did Yahweh really send the Babylonians to destroy Jerusalem? There weren't any emergency meetings when Jeremiah was shit-talking. But now he had Ben-Neria shit-writing. Now his predictions could carry divine weight. So this is Jeremiah 36, verse 11. When Michal son of Gmariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of Yahweh from the scroll, he went down to the secretary's room in the royal palace, where all the officials were sitting. And then Ben-Neria names five high officials by name and adds that there were more. They ask him to read the scroll out loud and uh, bring the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch, son of Neria, went to them with the scroll in his hand. They said to him, sit down please and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. When they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, We must report all these words to the king. And I think all of this should be seen as biased historical accounts from ben and Jeremiah's perspectives, telling their version of events, like kings do with inscriptions. So what was the king's reaction to the written words of Yahweh? Let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 36. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in his winter home with a fire burning in the fireplace in front of him. Whenever he was read three or four columns of the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them into the fireplace until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king and all his attendants who heard all these words showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Mm. So no fear or tearing of clothes upon listening to the written words of Yahweh. In hiding, Jeremiah was furious. Thankfully, the words of Yahweh came to him again, 
telling him that he will redictate everything word for word to Baruch and add some more prophecies, including the highlight. To the king, warning, his body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat by day and the frost by night. נבלתו תהיה מושלכת לחורב ביום ולקרח בלילה. In Jacob, הייתי ביום אוכלני חורב וקרח בלילה. The heat consumed me in the daytime and the cold at night. This line appears nowhere else in the Bible. It's hard for me to imagine that it would be a coincidence that a super famous prophecy against the king, <laughs> a, pro- a prophecy that made the rounds, found itself in a Jacob story that has so much Beneria and Jeremiah in it for no reason, just by accident. Jeremiah is livid. He's incest. People are ignoring him again. I mean ignoring Yahweh again. He's been ignored his entire life. And this time he had a scribe. And it happened all over again. To Yahweh. So he prophesied the horrible death to the king that, spoiler alert, would never come. But it did turn Jeremiah into an enemy of the state. Exposing a body is the ultimate disrespect of all time and for all time. It's a desecration. And this is the king we're talking about. So not only history, but Yahweh too works in mysterious ways because casting Jeremiah as an anti-war agitator is not exactly a match made in heaven. It's hard to know if Jeremiah always had a violent soul or if this was the result of recurring imprisonment, public shaming and torture. Be that as it may, even when Jeremiah called for peace, he just loved to go into detail about all the horrible things that were going to happen to you, your family, people he personally disliked, the noble elite, the priests, court prophets who promised the Babylonians would never attack, the city of Jerusalem as a whole, and the Judean king himself. He cursed at everybody. And as we will soon see, the consequences of his actions were turned into a Genesis story. The person who gave Jeremiah an ancient microphone so loud we can still hear it today, a microphone that turned him from a nuisance to a political problem that had to be resolved, that would be Baruch Benaria. We need to get to know him personally in order to appreciate how he imported and teleported himself into the characters he wrote. Specifically here, these are three servants who serve their master with fervent loyalty and results. Eliezer, the Abrahamic slave, Joseph, the Pharaonic slave, and one more slave who makes a guest surprise appearance in the heat of the drama in the book of Jeremiah. Let's read a short snippet of the story of Eliezer the slave, sent by Abraham to the east. He's looking for the perfect wife for Isaac. We can get a sense of the character, which I think is Baruch projecting his own character into Eliezer. Then he prayed, Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master Abraham. 
he most appreciates kindness. See, I'm standing beside the spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. So we can already see he's all in. He drank the Kool-Aid. Loves his master. And what kind of woman would he want for his master's son? Hmm? Let's see. May it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. In Hebrew, it's even more emotionally potent. He hadn't finished his own thoughts. Just as he was praying to find a good woman, in comes Rebecca. And you can feel him going, <gasps> and it's even portrayed in the words, especially chosen. <gasps> this is Benaria. So how did the character of Eliezer come to be? He was tasked to write a story about a servant on a mission. And as he wrote it, that character became him. There was no need for a fully-fledged slave character with a wonderful leader monologue just to tie Rachel to Isaac. That was the artist in Benneria that gave that story wings. And this would be the billionth example of a character that reflects its writer. He would have done anything for Jeremiah, even when it forced him into hiding when the Keegan court came looking. Thankfully for Baruch, the Benaria family was extremely well-connected and well-off. He became a scribe, and one of his brothers served as a minister or high-end official to the Judean king. Imagine Constantinople of 1453, with the Turks slowly tightening their noose around the city. Death was coming. That was Jerusalem of the Babylonian siege of 587 to 586 BCE. Hunger, disease, strife. Jeremiah became a fugitive. So he tried to leave the besieged city, which was illegal. He was arrested and accused of crossing the Berlin Wall to the other side to give himself up to the Babylonians. He tried to convince him that he was just heading to the land of Binyamin, where he's from. No, no, he's not going over to the Babylonians. They falsely accused him of spying. Beaten and demoralized, he was taken to a makeshift prison and thrown in a waterless pit. He would have died in that pit if it weren't for his savior, Baruch Ben-Neria, who recorded the events firsthand. We can speculate if Jeremiah was indeed a spy. He certainly acted like one. He promised Babylonian clemency to all who cross over. He was known by the Babylonians and seems to have gotten paid by them. 
So the Hebrew ministers apprehended him and demanded the king allow them to execute him for lowering the morale of the fighting men. This was now a different king and they had a good relationship. But under pressure from his nobles, under siege, the king told the ministers to do with them as they wished and his death sentence was throwing him into the waterless pit. Frail and famished like many Jerusalemites under the siege, he was drowning in the mud. It is then and there, Benaria writes, while his friend, mentor and personal hero is dying, that in comes a character we've never heard of before called Eved Melech Hakushi Ishsaris, translated as Eved Melech the Ethiopian, a eunuch. Eved Melech or Ebed Melech is literally slave king, so one of the king's slaves. So in these crucial moments described in chapter 38, a good Samaritan slave slash eunuch appears out of the blue upon hearing the plight of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah is in danger. And for some unknown reason, this Ethiopian is moved to such an extent that he darts outside the prison to the part of the city walls where the king currently is. The slave immediately gets an audience with the king and explains to him that the dangerous agitator, Jeremiah, is dying in a pit of despair. <clears throat> Sorry. In a pit of despair. The king, who a moment ago was fine with his nobles doing to Jeremiah whatever they wanted to, was suddenly convinced by this rando foreign eunuch that immediately gave this Ethiopian a royal decree to amass 30 people, meaning 30 high officials that will vouch for the king's order inside the prison and take Jeremiah out of the pit. And that wasn't enough for Mr. Eved Melech, no, no, no. He happened to be an exceptionally emotional and sensitive guy. He turned himself into a nurse for this annoying, unstable prophet he had never met. As the guards were lowering the ropes into the pit to pull Jeremiah out, Eved Melech ran around and fetched old clothes and salts and called to Jeremiah to put these under his armpits so that the ropes will not chafe his brittle skin as he's being pulled to safety. Saving him while scratching his skin, not on Eved Melech's watch. And while all this is happening, mind you, a person who does have <laughs> tender loving feelings towards Jeremiah, Baruch ben he is content with recording these dramatic events as if he's some objective observer or journalist. He just so happened to notice this Ethiopian slave and follow him <laughs> to see the king and then he could hear everything and then he ran all the way back to the prison with him and let this eunuch fetch clothes and salts for his friend. Okay. Up to now he was Sancho Pancha to Jeremiah's Don Quixote but all of a sudden he's this uh, uninvolved war reporter just following a story while his friend is dying. I don't think so. Remember Eliezer the slave. Literarily speaking, 
Eliezer and Ebed Melech are the same character. An emotional and loyal servant. The only difference between these characters is that Ebed Melech doesn't have an inner monologue because he appears in a historical account. Nobody gets an inner monologue in that genre. In a detour story in the sagas of the patriarch, now that's a genre that allows an inner monologue. These two characters represent how he sees himself. So who got Jeremiah out of the pit? He got his friend out of the pit with his connections in court. And he's the one who fetched the salts and old clothes to protect Jeremiah's skin from chafing. The story of Eliezer and the story of Jacob's feud with Lavan have shared qualities of complex literature and high-volume emotions that only one other Genesis story has. The Tale of Joseph. To get to Joseph, we first need to get to the aftermath of the sack of Jerusalem. The city is sacked, the king is caught, his eyes gouged out, thousands are taken to exile in Babylon. The Babylonians appoint governor a Hebrew noble from the hawkish faction, signifying a new leaf. That governor will make sure that everybody was paying their taxes and rebuilding the land. But when the central power fell, newcomers were on the come up. And one of them assassinated that governor. The remaining elites panicked, realizing the Babylonians would punish them all by exiling them to Babylon to stew with the very Hebrews they have fought with in Jerusalem. They wanted to flee while they still could, but they would like to have the fiery Jeremiah on board. He was right about the destruction of Jerusalem. Maybe Yahweh will tell him what to do. So they asked him to check with Yahweh if they could leave for Egypt. And he took some time and consulted with the deity and came back and said, uh, no, if you go, death, destruction, and some more death, said Yahweh. When we see ancient people as so religious, let's remember what happened next. They heard Jeremiah's dire warnings and replied with a uh, thanks but no thanks. Because they feared the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar if they stayed more than they feared of the wrath of Yahweh if they left. Do you know these uh, hard cuts in comedies? I will never wear this shirt. Cut. And he's wearing that shirt. So Jeremiah goes, We will all stay here and none of us will go to Egypt because if we go to Egypt, we die. Cut. They're heading for Egypt. Him and Beneria as well. Israel and Judah weren't national projects, but dominions of elites. This was communal immigration on a massive scale. Without their community, Jeremiah and Benarak could not have stayed. So against their fierce objection, they joined the convoy heading for Egypt. I think now we know enough about the lives of Jeremiah and Benarak to approach the fabulous tale of Joseph. I'll recap it in case it's not fresh in your memory. And stop me if you think you've heard this one before. The story of Joseph is of a special prophet 
who saw the future. He told his people, aka the sons of Jacob, aka the sons of Israel, aka the people of Israel, it means the same thing in Hebrew, but his prophecies only made them resent him. They despised him for being so special. They mocked him, beat him. His prophecies enraged them so that they threw him in a waterless pit. He was supposed to die in that pit, but was pulled out and sent against his wishes to Egypt. When he met the perpetrators again, he took revenge. He falsely accused them of spying. And when it was all said and done, he was right about his prophecies, and they were wrong. They might have thrown him in a waterless pit for his prophecies, but who had the last laugh? All those who wronged him later bowed down to him, groveled at his feet, now that his true genius was finally acknowledged. If you think that this story of Joseph sounds a lot like the story of Jeremiah, it's because it is the story of Jeremiah. Retold by Baruch ben in the literary style of an ancient tale. But we know Joseph. He's not an asshole. He's good. He's nice. He's also a servant from beginning to end, be it a servant of the gods, of the pharaonic ministers, of the pharaoh, or by the end, a servant of the community. That sounds like Baruch ben Neria. To appreciate how ben Neria fused himself and Jeremiah into Joseph, let me tell you how their partnership came to an end. In the final chapter, ben Neria writes for Jeremiah, that would be chapter 45, he chronicles a conversation they had. It is one of the shortest chapters in the Bible. 72 words in Hebrew and 128 words in English. It's so abruptly short in what is the longest book in the Bible that its miniature length, I think, speaks to what Ben Neria was going through at the time. The most common take about this chapter is that Ben Neria asks Jeremiah to make him a prophet. Rest, it turns out, menucha in Hebrew is a biblical synonym for prophecy. And he's asking Jeremiah, I mean asking uh, Yahweh, <laughs> to make him a prophet. And Jeremiah being Jeremiah, he says, not going to happen. You're no prophet. Yahweh says so. I'll read almost the entirety of it. It's so short. Jeremiah said to Baruch, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to you, Baruch. You said, Woe to me, Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. I am worn out without groaning and find no rest. But Yahweh has told me to say to you, Baruch, right? This is what Yahweh says. I will overthrow what I have built and uproot what I have planted throughout the earth. Should you seek great things for yourself, Baruch? Do not seek them 
for I will bring disaster on all people, declares Yahweh. But wherever you go, I will let you escape with your life. He does let him escape with his life, which is incidentally the same fate that awaited our friend Evedemelech. That's the entire chapter. That's it. In the ensuing chapters, Jeremiah has a different scribe. The text loses all of its pizzazz. First of all, that tells you all you need to know about who was the real talent in that partnership. I mean, Jeremiah without Beneriah is a rambling, annoying has-been who is celebrating the death and destruction brought on by the Babylonians in the lands of his former neighbors. That's gross. Secondly, the decline in the charisma and eloquence of Jeremiah also tells us a lot about the role of the scribe. If you have a shitty scribe, you're not an interesting person. If you have Beneria, you're still famous 2,500 years later. And Beneria without Jeremiah, what's the effect of that? Well, the story of Joseph, that's what. I don't think he wrote this story for Jeremiah, but for his new sponsors. Because Joseph did everything the opposite way of what Jeremiah preached for in Egypt. Joseph assimilated into Egyptian society. He married into a family of Egyptian priests, had half-Egyptian children, an Egyptian name. He worshipped Egyptian deities and respected all the gods. He was very specific about that. Ha Elohim, not Yahweh. Jeremiah was such a douche. In Egypt, he berates his community for assimilating and predicts a ton of apocalypses that never came to the Egyptians and the Hebrew immigrants. The evil cloud that hung over the Ben-Neriah patriarch stories was lifted in the Joseph tale. And Ben-Neriah produced an astonishingly positive yet flawed character that people instinctively love. Nobody, and I mean nobody, loved Jeremiah. Joseph does all of his prophesizing via dreams. This is another clear connection between the book of Jeremiah and Genesis, because Jeremiah drones on and on in his chapters about dreams and the relation to prophecies over and over and over again. Abraham had a dream. Jacob had a dream. Joseph had dream prophecies. Beautifully and vividly described dreams that are the centerpiece of the story. So what does Jeremiah think about dream prophecies? Huh. He thinks they're the tool of a charlatan. Not a real prophet. He's using it as an insult. (laughs) Oh, don't believe this one. He's but a dreamer of dreams. Or contrary to what was said about me, I am not the one dreaming dreams. And on and on he goes. Hates. (laughs) He just hates dream prophecies. So Ben-Neria, his friend and loyal servant, did not get what he considered was an upgrade from scribe to prophet. So Joseph prophesied for him. 
and he did it through dreams. His friend Jeremiah was like an older brother to him, but he betrayed him. And it was the younger brother who became the star of the community. We know that the unconscious works overtime in art, and that creators use their art to deal with their personal issues, work through them. And great literature is complex. Joseph is certainly an all-time great piece of literature. Not only because of all the ancient Egyptian stories weaved into it, not only because of the hyper-complex yet simple way the plot moves forward in two different locations, not only because of the masterly use of dramatic irony, not only because it serves as a unifying story that opposing parts of the community could all appreciate and relate to, and not only because it speaks to the community's core values of forgiveness and the aid in times of need. Those alone are enough to make us think very highly of the person who authored the tale of Joseph. But it's the way Beneria exorcised his own personal demons through the tale of Joseph that really blows my mind and gets my heart beating faster. Here we venture even farther away from anything related to biblical scholarship and history, and we go into personal interpretation territory. So let's give Joseph another different look. And stop me if you think you've heard this one before. The story of Joseph is that of a nice and positive dreamer of dreams who is not appreciated by his jealous older brothers, who mock his dream capabilities and don't think he's a prophet at all. But once Joseph gets to Egypt, it is there that everybody realizes how special he is. He becomes the best servant ever. And how does that special person act when he stands at the head of the community? Does he gloat? Does he huff and puff and go me, me, me? No. He asks the community not to bow down to him. Because he is merely a man, not one of the gods. And this was always going to happen. It's been prophesied. There's nothing to apologize for. So he forgives his brothers wholeheartedly and supports the entire community. If this sounds like the story of Baruch Ben Neria to you, it's because it is the story of Baruch Ben Neria. And it's fascinating to see how Joseph's character arc is basically him slowly morphing from a Jeremiah to a Beneria. He starts out pretty smug and pleased with himself and his spatial capabilities. And the father, aka the god, loves him most. And he kind of rubs it in his brother's faces. Maybe if he were more aware of other people's feelings, he wouldn't have found himself in a pit. By the end, though, the vanity of Joseph has evaporated, and he is but an unpretentious vessel of the gods, so he doesn't want any credit. He just wants to serve the community and do good by his peeps. 
What is Jeremiah doing at that time? He's parading in Egypt and calling everybody out. Because he is the prophet who was right. That couldn't be farther from Joseph. We can see Beneria through Joseph. So this is what impresses me deeply. The story of Joseph is also about Beneria's own ambitions and insecurities and how he worked through them in his writing. He became a great man. And when his desire for recognition was fulfilled, probably beyond his expectations, he wrote about a special guy who is humble and caring and forgiving. My reading of Joseph's forgiveness to those who never believed in him is that Benaria forgave Jeremiah for not believing in him. He became something better than a prophet. He created a hero that saw the best in people. And when his prophecies foresaw doom, i.e. the prophecy of the seven-year famine, he didn't go out to the streets like Jeremiah and curse at everybody. No, he got to work and prepared for the incoming disaster. Benaria wasn't a saint though, by any means. He probably had some apologizing of his own to do to other members of his community. And first of all, let's keep it real. He followed and promoted an asshole. Jeremiah's poison is in the bloodstream of human society till today. But back then it wasn't about that. With Jeremiah going from manic euphoria to debilitating depression, we should take another look at Benaria's role in hyping Jeremiah. See, after the sack of Jerusalem, when Jeremiah claimed that Yahweh forbade them all to move to Egypt, Ben Neria records that some in the community believed he was behind it, that he was turning Jeremiah against them. He mesit Jeremiah, inflames him, incites him. He later had to live with the people he incited against by trying to prevent them leaving to Egypt. He was putting them at risk when the Babylonians came back to see about who killed their appointed governor. So, he had some atoning of his own to do. He left the accusations leveled against him in the book of Jeremiah. That says something. The book that Jeremiah was tasked to write by Yahweh, I think, was the book of Genesis. If I follow the timeline of the book of Jeremiah correctly, and it is notoriously hard to follow, one year goes from when the work on the book starts and when Ben Neria reads the apocalyptic prophecies outside the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. I would guess that some of the stories of Genesis were written during that year, while the effort to turn it into literature probably happened down in Egypt. There, Ben Neria finally had time to relax, reflect, improve upon his previous work. Ben Neria started out as a wingman who saw himself a servant to the Chosen One, and he ended his life as the most accomplished Hebrew scribe and author, loved by his community and remembered for ages. 
and his successors in the Hebrew community in Egypt officially canonized him as the prophet Baruch. Now that we know what happened in Jerusalem during the Babylonian siege, we can appreciate how meaningful it is that the descendants of the hawkish faction in Babylon incorporated Ben-Neria into the scribal lineage of their great scribe Ezra. That's how big this servant became. He does take a subtle shot at Jeremiah in that chapter I read earlier when he was refused prophecy ship. He said, woe to me, Yahweh has added sorrow to my pain. In Hebrew, oinali ki yasaf, Yahweh yagon al machovi, yasaf, added to my pain. Yasaf is Yosef, Joseph. This is what I would call a biblical Easter egg. In the chapter he is not made prophet, he name drops the prophet he created that made him a superstar. Do you like apples? Well, I created a prophet. How do you like them apples? And this is nothing compared to how he used his own name as a verb in that Eliezer story I went over earlier. Baruch means blessed. Genesis 24, first verse. Abraham was now very old, and Yahweh had blessed him in every way. Uh-oh, berech oto. Berech is also the Hebrew word for kneel, but this is very rarely used in the Bible as such. Verse 11. Eliezer had the camels kneel <laughs> down near the well outside the town. Vayvrach hagmalim. This is the same root. This is super random. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the story. This is like inscribing Baruch was here in Genesis. But the people for whom Benaria wrote Joseph, they knew. It was in plain sight for the people who lived through the sack of Jerusalem and its aftermath, who knew of Jeremiah's time in the pit. They immigrated to Egypt with him and Benaria. So when Benaria writes a story of a prophet who is bullied and ignored and ridiculed, even though he is right, everybody knows it's inspired by Jeremiah events. The pit is not a seven-layered metaphysical or psychological story of a metaphorical pit we all encounter in our daily lives at work with our families. No. We're talking about literature in the 500s BCE. This is simple, direct symbolism. A pit is a pit. It is an author using literature to relay the trials and tribulations of his friend and connect it to the story of the exiled community in Egypt that had to reconcile and leave their harsh disagreements behind. And then Beneria poured himself into Joseph because that's how literature works. And he wrote it in biblical literature because that was the genre of the book he was writing. A mythical past to explain the present. So I'm thoroughly impressed by the Ben-Neria that pops out from all he wrote. He had his megalomaniac side as well. Hmm, we all do. 
his narcissism is all over Joseph. But what is for him the ultimate success? Helping his community, helping his family, being gracious in triumph. Ben Neria is one of those rarest of rarest of quote-unquote great men of history. He was human and flawed, but he turned it into art. In terms of the Hebrew language, Ben Neria was an innovator. So many of the biblical expressions and terms we still use today in Hebrew come from either Genesis or the book of Jeremiah. In Genesis, we have the tales of the flood, of Cain and Abel, of the Pharaoh's dreams of a future famine. All of these are adaptations. Benaria served world culture by preserving ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian tales and keeping them relevant for us in the 21st century. He should probably get some credit for the Hebrew community in Egypt becoming in the following centuries famous for its religious tolerance internal cohesion, general chillness, and most of all, for its biblical literature. This is why his name lived on. The writers that came after him saw him as a role model to look up to, a sort of patriarch. Later Hebrew, Egyptian, mostly Alexandrian, scribes and authors, standing on his shoulders, would produce the immensely important Septuagint translation from Hebrew to Greek. And they would go on to revere him so much, they wrote four books in his name. By then, he didn't have to carve out Baruch was here in code. His name was on the cover. So we can say he lived a good and fruitful life, and that he indeed shared his success with his community. Ben Neria's stories still work today. They are still moving. While no person alive today can appreciate the epic of Gilgamesh in the original language, there are a few millions of us living in the 21st century who, because of a series of historical flukes, are privileged to be able to enjoy to the fullest his wonderful writing capabilities in the language of his people. Thank you, Baruch. So, this is not the end of the episode, but it is the end of the story. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Coming up shortly is the long list of more connections between the book of Jeremiah and many stories in Genesis. This episode literally is a culmination of four plus months of work. It has been a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. Because there was so much time and energy put into it, I feel somewhat comfortable directly asking you that if you value and appreciate this content, please head to patreon.com slash biblical proportions to make sure that this is a sustainable podcast. We had a high bar for this podcast from the get-go, but we couldn't anticipate the amount of research, brainstorming, and preparation that would go into it to do it justice. We couldn't half-ass the impact of Ashurbanipal's library or cut corners telling the life story of Beneria Nana. Patreon.com slash Biblical Proportions. Obviously, 
pointing to a person and saying he wrote Genesis is taking the risk of being magnificently wrong and thus looking absolutely foolish. So I'm daring to be wrong in this episode. <laughs> if you want to tell me I'm wrong, you can head to our subreddit, Ancient World Stories, and let me know. Or you can head to our website, podcastofbiblicalproportions.com, and send us a message. On the other hand, if you think this is all very, very, very cool, maybe there's someone in your family or your circle of friends that will be interested in the story of the biblical authors of Genesis, then please send them uh, this podcast. Of course, I'm biased here, but this seems to me like a pretty cool story also to share on social media. All of that would be a big help. In the next episode, I'll elaborate on which of the other stories I think Beneria wrote himself, which seem more ancient or in a completely opposite style to that of Beneria. In the next episode, I will also tie up other cool loose ends and use all of this to see where this puts Genesis in the grand biblical scheme of things. Looking ahead to the next book, I'll contrast Genesis with Exodus, which seems to have been written by the other faction. The one that lost big and ended up in a forced exile in Babylon. Two different traditions that represent enemy factions that would in time be merged into one coherent narrative. Okay, so are you ready for the list of evidence? This is going to be a deep dive, which is super fun if you're into that kind of stuff. So just fair warning. If you're only interested in the story of Beneria and not in the minutiae, this would be a good time to stop listening. Now is the time for Bible Geeks. Going over the book of Jeremiah, there are dozens of examples of ideas, places, practices, characters, and stories that are important to Jeremiah that appear prominently in Genesis. Jacob is a master herder, and Jeremiah drones on and on about herding, which is important in the Bible, because it includes this farmer versus herder all-time rivalry. For Jeremiah, Yahweh is the shepherd. The people are his flock, and so on. 30 total herding motifs. Way more than any other prophet out there. By end, there's only one other prophet who adores Jacob as much as Jeremiah, Hosea. But for him, Jacob was a farmer, not a herder. And his scribe couldn't hold a candle to Benelia. Let me read one of those Joseph dream prophecies. And look at an equivalent prophecy by Jeremiah. It's in Genesis chapter 40. Joseph interprets the dream of a pharaonic chief cupbearer. The cupbearer says, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me. Yada, yada, yada. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. Hmm? And I took the grapes, squeezed them into the Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. Prophecy around the image of handing the great pharaoh a wine cup. Jeremiah chapter 25 verses 15 to 17. This is what Yahweh the God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with wine. <laughs> but it's a different cup of wine. Filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. He's insane. So I took the cup from Yahweh's hand oh, and made all the nations whom he sent to drink it. Oh. Busted. This is the same writer. 
taking Jeremiah's malicious wine cup to the all-powerful Yahweh prophecy and turning it into a beautiful, positive wine cup to the all-powerful Pharaoh prophecy. I mean, this is so specific, handing this wine cup. Taking a wine cup from Yahweh's hand, that's, this is not a religious term. This is not a religious practice. This is literature. And then there's the Joseph Jeremiah play on words. So the foreign official who released Jeremiah from prison, Sarah Tabachim, the head of the imperial guard, but literally in Hebrew it means the chief cook, Sarah Tabachim. Joseph is thrown into the prison of a foreign official, whose official title in Hebrew is Rav Tabachim, the head cook. Hmm? The head of the Babylonian imperial guard, the master cook, Tabachim, Tabachim. Jeremiah out of prison, Joseph in prison, hmm? wink wink, nudge nudge, say no more, say no more. The character of Joseph is not a patriarch. He does not feel any biblical mold in terms of uh, character traits. He's odd. He's good. And yet he's barely noted anywhere in the Bible outside of Genesis. Is this because his story was one of the last biblical stories written? Out of all of Jacob's sons, aka the sons of Israel, Joseph is the only one who doesn't represent a tribe. Judah is Judah. Reuven is the land of the tribe of Reuven. Levi represents the Levite priests and so on, what are called eponymous characters. Joseph is an aberration. He's not part of the tribes. Basically, the literary addition of Joseph created a problem with the biblical division of tribes, so there are inconsistencies throughout the Bible. As far as I could find, Joseph wasn't worshipped until the first centuries CE, once the literary character transitioned into a religious character. The Byzantines then pointed to a tomb and that was it. Abraham the patriarch is barely mentioned outside of Genesis, but here he is in Jeremiah chapter 33. In Genesis chapter 13, Abraham wants proof that his seed will inherit the land, so Yahweh initiates this voodooistic covenant of the pieces, a practice that includes cutting animals into halves and walking between those halves. Very specific and the first major ceremonial pact with Yahweh. Jeremiah talks about the exact same peculiar practice in his attacks against those who would not kneel to Nebuchadnezzar, those who are calling for independence. This is Jeremiah 34, verses 17 and 18. Therefore, this is what Yahweh says. You have not obeyed me, you have not proclaimed freedom to your own people. So I now proclaim freedom for you, declares Yahweh. Freedom to fall by the sword, plague, and famine. Those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. I think Jeremiah had this story commissioned to give ancient cred to his political point that his enemies are assholes. In our episode 28, Imagining the Writers of Jacob, we tried to picture the writers of the Jacob and Levant story. We had no idea of Beneriah back then. But if you go back and listen to that episode, we basically tried to create these two profiles, like one of those profiles of uh, serial killers. We divided it into a profile of a writer and a profile of an executive. The profile of the writer was of a gentle, kind soul. And the profile of the executive was of a nasty incel. You can go back and listen. The writer profile fits Baruch to a T, 
And guess who is a self-described honest to Yahweh insert? Jeremiah chapter 16, first verses. Then the word of Yahweh came to me. You must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place. There is a mention in Jeremiah of the Genesis matriarch Rachel, also a rarity. There are long-running Canaanite practices of sacrificing boys to the gods, especially in times of crisis, as in you sacrifice that which you hold most dear. Scholars say that this is the context for the, for the binding of Isaac's story, Yahweh rejecting this practice. Well, Jeremiah happens to have strong opinions about child sacrifice, which seems to have been more and more popular as the siege went on. He admonishes in two different chapters those who sacrifice sons. Isha Elohim, the person of God that gets into a supernatural wrestling match with Jacob, also makes an appearance in Jeremiah chapter 35. The weird subplot of the mandrakes in Genesis Dudaim in the Jacob uh, anthology, which we discussed in our episode 31, Here Come the Tribes. This is also referenced in Jeremiah, which is super random, if not intentional. Mandrakes. The fruit is mentioned in one other biblical book, Chronicles, written in Babylon, where mandrakes grow. In the first creation story, there is the very famous term for chaos, tohu vavohu, inspired by the deities Tihamat and Bohu. This is an iconic literary invention of a new term by combining the roles of these two foreign deities. It was to reinforce the darkness and abyss of the pre-creation world. We talked about it in our first episode. This is poetry, Tovavo. Well, Jeremiah mentions Tovavo in chapter 4, verse 23. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty. It was Tovavo. In Genesis, Ephraim is not one of Jacob's sons, because that would implicate the tribe with the betrayal of Joseph. In Genesis, Ephraim is the second son of Joseph, and he gets the blessing of Jacob to be number one. Guess who also loves Ephraim more than any other tribe, even his own? Jeremiah fawns over Ephraim. Then there's another, even younger son, Benjamin, who wasn't there for the crime against Joseph and is Jacob's new favorite because he's his only other son by his beloved Rachel. You know who hails from the tribe of Benjamin? Nyam, nyam, nyam. Jeremiah. Jeremiah also mentions the Genesis divine order to go forth, to go forth and multiply, pour vous, the promise to have a seed as numerous as the stars. He also talks about the sun on the one hand and the moon and the stars on the other as governing the day and night, as in the first creation story. And some more references to the themes of Cain and Abel, Abraham, the Garden of Eden and Noah. I could swamp you with every little reference. But, you know, I mean, there comes a point... <laughs> There came a point where I just said, put the, f- sorry, put the holy book down and move on. Live your life like Baruch did. So I'm sure that if trained scholars will pour over it, they would find more such examples. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I truly appreciate it. Let's wrap up Genesis next week. See you then.